If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. Tonight's theme is slightly musical, so let's call it Sing Out. We'll meet the guys from the acclaimed Wellstrung Quartet. Get down with an up with people person, and if you're a certain age, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And we are. Visit with 1950s film and singing star Tab Hunter. And we'll talk to a lesbian who was one of the King's legendary Sweet Inspirations backup singers. And I am so excited we're doing this story. I know you are. You were even singing when we were reading through the script. I was singing their wonderful song, Sweet Inspirations. And if I didn't want everyone to stay glued to this show, I would say, you got to go YouTube the Sweet Inspirations singing Sweet Inspiration. That's a fabulous song. And but Sissy, not until you hear the part of the show. Well, you got to hear the show yeah. after the show. Yes. No offense to the people after us. No. But um, yeah, and Sissy Houston, uh, Whitney's mom was in the Sweet Inspiration. Oh, you're kidding. They're like the best group that nobody's heard of and everybody has heard. So did they have a, uh, their own career in addition to doing backup for yeah. Elvis? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Go check them out. I was such an ignorant child. But there's age. much more to come about that. There is. And you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the Up With People because when I was in college and I was a pre-med, I wanted out so bad, I thought, well, the obvious solution is to run away and join up with people. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew nothing about them, but I don't know why that seemed like the I obvious choice. I do think choice. they were a cult, but we'll find out more, I think. I know. I can't wait. Anyway, the four boys of Well Strung, the singing the singing string quartet know their chiseled torsos and matinee idol faces make them seem like an inspired novelty act, but that would sell them short. Steve Pride reports. Hey, I'm Chris Marchant. I'm Daniel Shevlin. Hi, this is Trevor Wadley. Hello, I'm Edmund Bagnell. And we are well strung. I'm Edmund, and I'm first violinist. My grandparents bought a violin for me, but it was kind of silly because they got a full-size violin, whereas normally kids get, you know, half-size, quarter-size. I definitely needed a quarter-size because I was six when I started. But my parents liked the idea, so they got me violin lessons and a new properly-sized violin, and I've been playing ever since. I'm Chris. I'm the second violinist. When I was a kid, my mom told me that I had to do something, like some kind of activity, and I was terrible at t-ball. I couldn't even hit the stationary ball off the tee. So I quit that and started playing violin instead. This is Trevor. I play viola. In fifth grade, I started in a public school program. I started on violin. I didn't really have anyone in my family or community that I knew whom played. 
I don't know, it was something that was foreign to me, and I wanted to figure it out and see what it was all about, so I started. I'm Daniel, and I'm the cellist. For me, it was probably third grade, sort of an activities coordinator just came around to our schools, and anyone who wanted to play a stringed instrument could sign up, and at the time, I actually signed up to play violin. And so I played violin for about a year, but then um, my string teacher, she actually needed more cellos. And so I guess I was just more drawn to the sound of a cello because I was just decided to switch then and there. And so that's how I started playing the cello. Since you've been gone, I can't breathe for the first time. I'm so moving on, yeah, yeah. Thanks to you, thanks to you. Now I can, I can. You should know, you should know that I can. I get what I want. Since you've been gone, I was doing another show in Provincetown in 2010. And I would play a violin on the street to make extra money. And a theater producer in town, Mark Cortali, approached me and we started collaborating on a project because he knew that I sang as well. So we just started tossing ideas around and came up with putting a spin on the standard string quartet. I found Daniel through a mutual friend on Facebook and I just sent him a message. He was living in Denver at the time and I was like, hey, you should move back to New York and do this instead. (laughs) So he eventually did and then right after that happened, Edmund and Trevor showed up to our auditions. The reaction has been fantastic. I think the most common reaction, I would say, in a way, is surprise. <laughs> we get a lot of people who are like, well, you know, I, you know, I saw this advertisement for the show, and I thought it was going to be kind of good for a few laughs. And then like, after the show, they're like, wow, you guys really impressed me. So I think people kind of don't know what to expect with us. I think what you were saying earlier cool. about what is our genre, you know, I don't think we actually neatly fit into one genre, and I think that's why people don't know what to expect with us. But we're pioneering the way, right? We got our start in Provincetown. That's where most people heard about us for the first time. And, you know, they have Naked Boy singing up there and a couple other nude shows. So people, I think, just assumed that that's what we did. But no, not the case. We just were trying to have a witty name. Yeah. (laughs) A little cheeky. Cheeky. The other misconception, I think, also based on the name, is that we don't actually play very well or that it's a gimmick and we just like made up a funny show and are pretending to play violin or something. I think a few people have that we've come across have had that perception of us and then they come away realizing that we are real full-time musicians. We tend to gravitate towards pop music because if you think about classical music of the time, it was popular music of its time. Right. All music was new at one time. Yeah. And so I think there's some subtle beauty in trying to combine both of them. And at the same time, kind of keeping true to the roots of a string quartet while doing this new thing of singing and playing at the same time. And There are no other singing string quartets, so we're kind of making it up as we go. We could have had it Starting Provincetown, you know, that brings a certain audience with it, just inherent to who goes there in the summer. But as we've been touring around the country, our audience has definitely been getting more mixed. A lot of teenagers, actually, which is And kids. Cool. Yeah, kids, families. <laughs> what is so cool about what we do is that we appeal to a 
really a truly broad range of people. We'll have kids and then like 80-year-olds in our audience, and everybody seems to leave having a really great time. And um, I think that's pretty special, you know, creating a cool night out for a wide variety of people. We just happen to all be gay. It wasn't the point of the show at all. It just happens to be that way, and it's not something we focus on in the show. It's just a fact. Well, also, and we were also created, not created in P-Town, but, you know, a it's lot where of got where we got all of our grounding was in P-Town, and obviously it's a predominantly gay audience. So in order to get a good jump, I'm sure a lot of our content in our first show was a little bit more gay-centric, and there's still moments, but it was never intended to be like a gay show or a... You know, it's just part of who we are, but it's not what defines us, I don't think. I think our music should be what defines us. So, so what? I'm still a rock star. I got my rock moves, and I don't need you. And guess what? I'm having more fun. And now that we're done, I'm gonna show you tonight. I'm alright. I'm just fine, and you're the tool, so, so what? I'm still a rock star, I got my rock moves, and I don't want you tonight. And now that you've heard them on the radio, you can go be distracted by their boy band Good Looks because they'll appear January 13th at the Renberg Theater at the Gay and Lesbian Center. And even if you can't see them there, but you are fascinated by them and want to know more, check them out at wellstrung.com. And that's actually well-strung.com. And tickets for their show at the Renberg are only $30. So we've grown accustomed to seeing the Super Bowl halftime as a showcase for aging rockers. So it's easy to forget that for years it was a home to a singing cult of closeted gay youths. Yes, we are talking about up with people. I'm blushing. So how gay and how closeted were they? Steve Pride can tell us. Since 1965, the Peppy Clean Cut Singing Group Up With People has sung to over 20 million people worldwide, performed at four Super Bowl halftime shows, and been parodied on The Simpsons and South Park, a favorite of both Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. The smile-drenched youngsters are often seen as the embodiment of conservative American ideals. My name's Eric Roos. I traveled in Up With People my first year in 1980-81. I had had a first year of college and it had not gone well. I'd been kind of a big fish in a small pond in high school, best little boy in the world because 
oops, I was gay, and that was not going to be okay in my world. I was going to be everybody's favorite little boy. I was going to be Mr. Achiever. So then I go to college, and meanwhile, you know, my libido is stirring, and I'm freaking out. So I had a little breakdown, and when my parents said, you should go to Up With People, I thought, well, at least I could delay whatever's going on. I'll just disappear into this performing group. I never even saw a show. I drove down to L.A. They were doing a Super Bowl. I met some people. They interviewed me. I got accepted because none of us are accepted based on our talent. And you'd know that if you ever saw a show. We are moving and we won't stand still. We have got a mighty job to fill. The world's all waiting to be remade by every girl. And a young play. The kind of ridiculous and tragic irony about my experience and I think so many of the guys in my age cohort in Up With People is... There were lots of homos around, and it was an open environment. I mean, you could be gay, at least in the confines of that little microcosm. So Up With People goes around, all around the world, recruiting boys who like to dress up in tights and prance around on stage. So you get all these boys together in this environment, and there is no gay. There is no homosexuality. Up With People pretends that literally that doesn't exist. We were under strict orders that we can't have sex. But the only sex that you can't have, supposedly, is with girls, if you're a boy. There's room for the doers and dreamers, and for those who don't have a name. Everybody is different, but they want to be treated the same. You and me were just... That was because it was inconceivable that you would be having sex with other boys, even though when we stayed in host families, we were almost always sleeping in the same beds with these other boys. It was so confounding because so many of us were gay, but we were operating in this incredibly restrictive environment where we were expected to adhere to this rigid, very controlled idea of what it was to be a young American male. Aggressive, hyper-masculine, clean-cut, well-scrubbed. We're going to save the world from communism and any kind of deviance. Which way, America? Which way, America? Which way, America? Which way to go? I remember that I fell in love my second year with a boy in the cast, and he was completely unaware of it. As was I, in so many ways... I didn't know what love was. I knew all that was happening was when this boy would get off the bus, I didn't know where I was or what to think or what to do. And it was so strange because often we were rooming together. And for some reason, we were always put in the same bed. And oddly, we always would end up kind of our bodies slammed against each other in the night. It was very innocent, and nothing was ever said in the daylight, in the, the harsh light of reality, I suppose. That feeling of coming apart may be part of coming of age. That feeling of coming apart 
was the first time that I was really around a lot of other gay guys. I knew they were gay because it was the first time I sensed a gay dar in me. But I was so terrified that in no way did I ever reach out to them. It started to happen, though, that I knew they were reaching out to each other. And I felt, and I feel, an incredible sense of cowardice now that these guys were able to in some way connect. And I was such, I don't know, I think a coward. So still wrapped up in my own idea that I needed to pass that I was still playing the good boy to such a degree that I did not take the opportunity to at least connect. I wanted the leaders to love me. I wanted still to be the best little boy. I was still playing that idiotic game. And yet, one of my best friends, he fell in love with a guy from South America in our cast, and it ended up kind of blowing apart, and they were forcibly separated in a way that was shaming and humiliating. And because they were not caught in a sexually compromised situation, they could not be sent home. But the very fact of their love, their deep, obvious friendship, and the fact that they had tried to rig the system so that they could be roomed together more than was random, when management found out about that, they hit the roof. And they never were able to room together again, which, you know, okay, fine, no big deal. But it was these guys were beaten down to within an inch of their life, basically in front of the whole cast. Everyone knew about it. It was never directly spoken about, though. It was this sick, underground, dirty, shaming. Every day, people the kind you meet every day, just walking down the We lionize heroes in this culture. We lionize firefighters and soldiers and people who do acts of physical bravery. And that's fine. Whatever. You want to call that a hero? That's fine. Heroes are people who take profound risks. So many people project on gay people that were weak, you know. <sighs> show me someone who's come out of the closet, and I'm going to show you someone who's braver than just about anyone on earth. Eric Ruse is one of several former Up With People cast members featured in the documentary Smile Till It Hurts. He now lives in Northern California and with his husband Jack runs the San Francisco-based company Nancy Boy. These days he smiles when he feels like it and only sings in the shower. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Up, up, up with, with people. people. You meet them wherever you go. Yeah, yeah, meet them. Up, up, up with, with people. people. They're the best Ooh, kind of folks you know. Ba, ba, da, if more ba, people were for people, let people everywhere. There'd be a lot ba, less people ba, to worry ba, about. Ba, and a lot ba, more ba, people who care. There'd be a lot less people to worry about And a lot more people who care Oh yeah, it's a lot less people to worry about And 
lot more people who care. I, I am <sighs> concerned that that song, I didn't realize, is still knocking yeah. around my brain. Yeah. I wouldn't have known this. No. I would have died yeah. ignorant about this fact, but that song is still lodged in my brain from when I was 10. I know. Are, you can't get rid of it. Are and you I, feeling wistful, Wenzel? I am. I'm thinking... That was the road not taken I probably should have taken so I could have met my own Eric Roos because no talent consideration, lots of closeted gay boys wanted to get out of school. That was and it and, was fun. I and, loved it. And them. he was a perfect, you know, he was like, he was the perfect boy to everybody, to all the adults. It, it's too, it hit too close to home. I'm going to weep in the corner while you talk. As you said, the best little boy. I know. Um, and I did find out that the Upwood People still exists. And the website looks fabulous. <laughs> well, of course it does. It's full of bright colors. <laughs> it's true. Anyway, well, moving on to other bright, wonderful things. Tab Hunter was Warner Brothers' top money-grossing movie star from 1955 through 1959. He was handsome, talented, and closeted. And a year ago, Steve Pride and I traveled to his Santa Barbara home for this conversation. When I count three, will all of the ladies in the audience please go, <sighs> Tab, when I was young, he just was amazing looking. Beautiful California surfer that every single girl or boy would want to make out with. Mr. Tab Hunter. He was the embodiment of youthful American masculinity. Are you Tab Hunter? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I've died and gone to heaven. Kids and the fans just gravitated to him. He was the all-American boy, and nobody sold that image better. How do you shave, Tab? With a Gillette Super Speed, of course. What do you like about Tab Hunter? Well, there's <laughs> quite a few things. Don't you ever think about marrying? All the time, Ernie. That's what keeps me single. Hello, I'm Tab Hunter, and I've got a secret. My name is Tab Hunter. I've heard of you. <laughs> I've been around a long time. <laughs> well, let's start at the beginning, because this is a big life. Oh, my God. 1931 was the beginning. That's a you long were born. Time what happened next? No. You had a really rough childhood. I had a very abusive father. He was very abusive to my mother. And she left, took my brother and myself from New York to San Francisco. So we spent the first few years of our lives up in the Bay Area. What was she like? My mother was a really strict, religious, German woman. She didn't put up with nonsense. She was a very serious person. And she kept telling us all the time, what you learn, no one can take away from you. And she pushed education, 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 because it's everything. She worked like a dog to keep us going to private schools. Your mom had a saying about being showy. My mother used to say, nothing for show. So what happened? I wind up in show business. She never liked the Hollywood hoopla. She only did one or two interviews in all the time that I was in the movies. It just wasn't her thing. She wasn't comfortable with people being in the public eye because it was too much adulation. And she said people have got to learn to divorce themselves from themselves. I was surprised to find you were very shy. Extremely. How did you become an actor? I was at a stable. I had a job out there on the weekends. I was about 14. And Dick Clayton, he was an, an actor, and he came out to the studio with Ann Blythe and was doing a photographic layout with her. And I used to see him out there all the time riding, and we struck up conversation, and I knew he was an actor, so I kept asking him a lot of questions. And he said, if you're really serious, you should think about doing that. And he was the one who, when I was in New York, underage in the Coast Guard, he got me tickets to see my first Broadway show. 
He was the one who kept planting the seed all the time. You've got to work. This is not something that you fall into. I guess your first big break was being signed with Rock Hudson's agent, Henry Wilson. Dick Clayton introduced me to Henry Wilson, but he told me, he said, beware of Henry because Henry's reputation is kind of strange, so I just think you should just be aware. And I was. Henry was a fairly good agent, but I left him when Dick Clayton became an agent because he was part of my family. My mother knew him, my brother knew him, I knew him. I mean, he's a great person. And Henry was so upset by that that he, Confidential Magazine was coming out on a story on Rock Hudson, and he gave them a story on me when I'd been arrested like when I was 16 or 17 years old for being at a party that a bunch of guys were at that were dancing together. You know, you might have called it a gay party, but that word wasn't around in those days. Henry Wilson liked to change his client's name. How did Art Galeen become Tab Hunter? Well, they said we have to tab you something, so that's how Tab came about. And I showed horses, hunters and jumpers. So they picked Tab Hunter as opposed to Tab Jumper. So you became Tab Hunter, and then what? The first big film I had was an independent called Island of Desire with Linda Darnell. I did a test with Linda, and then I went off to Jamaica, and we did it in Jamaica and London, and I was terrible in it. I mean, really, really bad. In fact, I was so bad, I probably couldn't get a job for well over a year. But you improved. Just a few years later, you beat out James Dean and Paul Newman for the lead in Battle Cry. Merv Griffin, Marilyn Erskine and Merv and I were out having dinner one night, and Merv said, I've just read a book called Battle Cry, and uh, I think you'd be perfect for Danny Forrester. You should have your agent check on it. So I immediately bought the book, read it, reminded me of my brother so much that I underlined everything pertaining to the character of Danny. And my agent got me an interview at Warner Brothers. I did a test, did another test, did another test. I did nine of them. After the eighth one, they went back to New York and tested Jimmy and uh, Paul. And then they came back and said, okay, kid, we'll give you one more chance. And uh, I thought it was terrible, the last test, and that's the one that got me the role. As a gay kid, my favorite Tab Hunter film on The Late Show was... Damn Yankees. That was a fun film to do. I loved it. It was the original Broadway cast. I was the only outsider in it. And Jack Warner bought that as a gift for me, as a makeup gift, because we'd had a big argument. (laughs) But I was thrilled about that, because it was my first musical. And I loved that cast. I mean, how could you not love Gwen Verdon or Bobby Fosse or Gene Stapleton, Ray Walson? My gosh. Well, you've got to dance in a film. Bob Fosse is a pretty good guy to start with. (laughs) Well, I told Bobby, I said, I've got two left feet. He said, don't worry about it. You'll be fine. (laughs) You had trouble with the director, George Abbott. He didn't want me from the start. He thought, Tab Hunter's a little light in his loafers. I thought, oh, really? You know, come on, give me a break. Jack Warner said, I bought it for Tab Hunter, and Tab Hunter's going to do it, period. And you don't say no to Jack Warner. By then, you were already a really successful recording artist. How'd that come about? Natalie Wood and I were on promotion in Chicago for a film called The Burning Hills. It was a Louis L'Amour novel that Warner Brothers had put us in. It wasn't very good. The best thing in it was my horse. We were in Chicago, and this DJ, Howard Miller, heard me singing, and he said, did you ever think of recording? And I said, no, gosh. I used to sing in the shower a lot where everyone sounds good, (laughs) or I sang in church. And he said, "Uh, would you mind if I talk to Randy Wood about you uh, going to see him? I said, sure. So Randy Wood was president of Dot Records. He called me in. 
you heard me sing. He presented me with a tune called Young Love. I recorded it on a Friday. Monday morning, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard, and when I heard it in the car radio, I almost hit a palm tree. I was so nervous and so excited about it. And it knocked Elvis out of the number one slot, stayed there for about six and a half weeks, you know. And we used Elvis's backup, the Jordanaires. He wasn't happy about that. Well, then I've got to tell you what happened after that. We recorded an album at Dot, and then Jack Warner immediately called me into the office and said, wait a minute, what the hell do you think you're doing? I said, well, I was asked if I wanted to record, and I he said, we own you for everything. I said, but Mr. Warner, you don't have a recording company. He said, well, we do now, and they started Warner Brothers Records. <laughs> you recorded a lot, though. A lot I did quite there. a few albums and quite a few singles, yeah. In the 50s, you were seen as this golden boy that everyone wanted, but you were going through so much pain having to hide your sexuality. I wasn't so much hiding as running away. Whenever something was kind of scary for me, I would run out to the horses. They were my touch of reality in that unrealistic world of Hollywood. I was very, very comfortable shoveling the real stuff. <laughs> is that basically what Hollywood is, shoveling the stuff? Well, I think you play the game. I mean, that's your job. In those days, when you were under contract to a studio, you played whatever they wanted you to do. If they're building you into the all-American boy, that's your job. And if you don't do the things they ask you to do. Either you're on suspension from the studio. Talk to Betty Davis about that. <laughs> she had a thousand of them. Either you're under suspension, or they get rid of you and get someone else who will do what they want. Tab Hunter, beautiful house, nice man, handsome husband. He's just living the dream. He And he just seems so grounded, given all that he went through. Oh, I know, because I can't imagine going through this back when he went through it. it. I mean, it's hard enough even now, Yeah, as I understand it. But he has no bitterness or anything. No. But there is still more to come from our interview with Tab Hunter. And a queen behind the king, Miss Estelle Brown of the Sweet Inspirations. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Young Love, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. 1950s movie idol Tab Hunter just loved to sing and did so in the St. Paul's parochial school when he was young. His good looks also opened doors into the music scene. The 1957 popular song Young Love, written by Rick Carty and Carol Joyner, and first recorded by Carty and the Jivatones, was released by Star Records. But it would be Tab Hunter's version of the song that gave it some traction. Released by Dot Records, it hit number one on the disc jockey chart, the bestseller chart, the jukebox chart, in the composite chart of the top number one songs. It hit pay dirt as a gold record. Hunter also loved Broadway musicals, including Oklahoma and The King and I. He even starred in the 1958 musical film, Damn Yankee. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Scott Ilnicki. Hello, I'm Tab Hunter, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM. 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, and streaming online at kpfk.org.
They say for every boy and girl There's just one love in this whole world And I know I found mine The heavenly touch of your embrace Tells me no one could take your place Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. <laughs> that song coming out of break was Tab's 1957 hit, Young Love, which was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 charts for six weeks and sold over a million copies. And now back to our conversation with Tab Hunter. Let's talk about relationships. You dated Tony Perkins for about three years, yeah. Tony was a very good actor, very bright young man, had a great sense of humor. It's just very sad the way his life ended. The pressure in any relationship is intense, but to have one where you have to keep it so secret. Well, I've always felt that it's nobody's business. I've always felt that way. But you still had to hide it back in the day. I never thought about hiding it. I just kept on the go. It's hard to hit a moving object. Your big comeback, I hate to use that word, but... I was doing dinner theater back in the 80s, the same time you were down in St. Petersburg. So it was a comeback. Your big comeback in the 80s was thanks to a queer icon and his film, Polyester. John Waters called me up. He said he'd like to send me a script. So I said, please. And then he said, how would you feel about kissing a 300-pound transvestite? <laughs> I said, I'm sure I've kissed a hell of a lot worse. And I'd met Divine before, who was absolutely wonderful. And having worked with Divine in Polyester, which was a great experience, it's because of that that we used him in our film, Lust in the Dust. Which I love. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, because Alan single-handedly raised all the money for that film. It was a script that I wrote. It started out as The Reverend and Rosie, and it was going to be with Cheetah Rivera and myself, but Cheetah was tied up on Broadway doing The Rink with Liza Minnelli. So then I wanted Shirley MacLaine to do it, and I uh, couldn't get that done. And then Alan, I met Alan, and he said, I think it should be a comedy western, and you should call it Lust in the Dust, and you should use Lainey Kazan and Divine as half-sisters. And I thought, whoa, what a great idea. And uh, he left Fox, and um, that was our first film together. Well, tell me about meeting Alan, because that's a love story. Well, he was at 20th Century Fox. I went in to do an interview with him about... Uh, having worked at Fox, and I presented my script to him, and he read it and got back to me and said that he thought it was a really good idea. He presented it at Fox, but they passed on it, and then we spoke about that, and he said, I'll leave Fox. I'll find a way of making this happen. He's a very good producer. When did you know he was the one? The one. I just never thought of it that way. I just thought, that kid is really sharp. I really like him. He's a decent human being. You seem to be a very happy person. You know, I'm a firm believer that somewhere under the pile of crap, there is a pony. Go for it. 
Do you think your looks hurt you being taken seriously as an actor? Probably, but people always put emphasis on the wrong thing. I don't place importance on that. I never have. What you are as a person inside and how you think, those are important things. The rest of it is a bunch of garbage. You're a really cool guy. I mean, you think of old stars like Norma Desmond and Sunset Boulevard, and here you are with your dogs and your husband and your ranch. And What advice would you give to yourself as a 10-year-old if you could just whisper something in your ear back then? I was an idiot at 10. <laughs> 15. Uh, still an idiot. <laughs> You're Catholic, correct? Oh, yeah. But you had a bad experience coming clean to a priest in confession at well, one point. Well, that was many, many years ago. Recently, we had a screening of our film in Connecticut, and only a few miles from the theater was my good friend Dolores Hart. She was an actress, but now she's a mother superior at the Abbey of Regina Laudis there. So I emailed the mother, Dolores, and I said, I'd love for you to come to our screening. And she came to it. And Rex Reed and I were up on stage doing a little Q&A afterwards. And he introduced Mother Dolores. She stood up and took a, took a bow. And then, like the flying nun, came down the aisle to the footlights, you know, the front of the stage. And I jumped off the stage to stand by her because I really love her and I've known her a long time. Then she looked right out of the audience, and I love what she said. I want to tell you all, there is no hetero, there is no homo, there is only love. And I thought, whoa! <laughs> She's pretty fantastic. I know Dolores Hart from King Creole with Elvis and Where the Boys Are. Did you ever do a film with her? She actually did The Pleasure of His Company on Broadway with Cyril Richard. And when I was signed to do the movie, I was sure that it was going to be uh, Dolores Hart but they gave it to Debbie Reynolds. Of course, I'd known Debbie forever, you know, because we grew up together. You were on a lot of studio-arranged dates and things with Debbie Reynolds. I wouldn't Reynolds. call those studio-arranged dates. The studio wants someone to go to an opening, you go. And why not go with somebody you know really well and enjoy being with rather than some pretty thing that's boring? Debbie's a hell of a lot of fun. Always has been. And ever since she blew the French horn in the band at Burbank High School. And Natalie Wood? Nat was like my kid sister. She was much younger than me. And I really think uh, she's just a delightful, charming gal. And, of course, I was so thrilled that we were able to get Bob Wagner in our documentary because R.J. is, without a doubt, the most level-headed person you'll ever meet. And he never talks about Natalie. And it was wonderful for him talking there about our relationship and all that because the press has been so despicable about Natalie's death, but then the press has a tendency to be like that. What's the biggest misconception about Tab Hunter or Art Galene? I don't know. Do you care? No. <laughs> Your mom had some mental health issues. Oh, big time, yes. I had to commit my mother to, to a mental institution for 37 shock treatments. Back then, homosexuality was actually a mental illness or classified as a mental That's illness. Right. People forget how different the times were. Yeah, very So different. talk about being gay in that period in which the word didn't exist. and We never talked about it. The only person I could ever talk to was Dick Clayton. If I had any problems whatsoever, I would go to Dick Clayton. He was like a father confessor for me. That really helped me. Everyone needs someone to be able to talk to, I think. What do you think of young Hollywood today? I mean, today, Matt Boomer can walk the red carpet holding his husband's hand. That's fine, but you will not see a leading man in motion pictures doing that. 
it's the same today as it was back in the 50s and 60s. In that case, Hollywood hasn't come around to that. But uh, you will see gay comedians, characters, and leading people perhaps on television or something, but I haven't seen it in motion pictures. This has been a conversation with Tab Hunter. His memoir and the documentary about his life are both entitled Tab Hunter Confidential. This is Deep Pride. Thanks for listening. Young Okay, Wenzel, my personal motto mm-hmm. up till now mm-hmm. has been there's an ass for every saddle. But I think I'm going to change it, <laughs> and I am going to credit Tab Hunter with this. Somewhere under the pile of crap is a pony. Well, that's, that's been kicking around a while. Oh, really? Yeah, there's, it's a title of a book, uh, Somewhere There Must Be a Pony. Oh, it's James, are uh, they promised me a pony? I don't something know. Something like that. Uh, okay, I well, I still like it. I'm still going to say, I'm well, sorry. I heard it from Tab. He didn't make it up, and, and I don't think he wrote the uh, words and music to Young Love, although the no, song Young Love did knock that. even Elvis up the top of the charts. And you know what's interesting about this is he is right. There, Can we think of a lead man that's come out, a leading man that's come out? No, not yet. Although in my mind, Matt Boomer is a leading man. <laughs> But no, I guess, I mean, strictly speaking, no. So Tab is still a trailblazer. He is. He's still number one. Oh, well. He S- is. Speaking of young love. And, and when don't we? <laughs> when don't we? We do. We do around here a lot. Um, speaking of, and okay, thank you for that wonderful segue. My pleasure. Um, Estelle Brown lives a quiet life in Compton these days. She sings in her church choir, but once upon a time, she was indeed rock royalty. They say that behind every great man is a great woman. And in the case of Elvis Presley, there were several great women behind him. And they were called the Sweet Inspirations. This time the girl is gonna stay. This time the girl is gonna stay. For more than just a day. His backup singers and opening act for nearly nine years. The Sweet Inspirations also sang background for a who's who of pop music on the greatest recordings of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And one of those voices that helped define the sound of the generation belonged to a lesbian. My name is Estelle Brown. I'm of the Sweet Inspirations. Have been a member of the group since the early 60s. I'm from New York City. Well, I was born and raised in the church, and we had a family group, and we were called the Twilight Gems. Every month, we would go to different churches and uh, perform. That's how I met Sissy Houston, Dion, her sister Dee Dee, Myrna Smith. You know, that's how we all got to know each other. And um, Sissy was doing a lot of recordings at the time, and she needed some girls to make up a background, and she happened to call me in, and that's how I got involved with, we weren't called the Sweet Inspirations at the time, we were called the girls, and um, we worked for Atlantic Records, 
And basically, everybody that came through Atlantic Records, we did the background. Aretha Franklin, Dusty Springfield, Jimi Hendrix, Wilson Pickett. We worked with some of everybody. So they decided that they liked our harmonies so well that they wanted to record us as a group. And this guy named Dan Penn wrote a song called Sweet Inspirations. And that's what they named us, Sweet Inspirations. And we put the record out. Elvis was getting ready to come back and go on his live performances again. And he heard the record and he decided he liked what he heard and he wanted us to back him. And so we worked with him from 69 to 77. What was Elvis really like? The biggest misconception that I find is that people, especially black people, think Elvis was prejudiced. That's not true. If he had been... Don't you think in eight years we would have known? No. He was, like he said, I'm not your boss. I'm not over you. I'm your brother. And that's exactly the way he treated us, like he was our big brother. And deep down in my soul, I really believe that Elvis and all the crew knew about my sexuality. No one ever said anything to me about it. They never downed me for it. They never asked me about it, but I, deep down inside, I really believe they knew. I know that all my group members know, you know, Sweet Inspirations know. Yeah. How did you find out he died? We were in a plane. We were going to, um, I can't even remember where we were going, but I know that we had an engagement with Elvis, and we were leaving the day before. We were on the plane on our way, and they called the plane and told them we had to land because Elvis had made his transition. We just lost it. Everybody lost it. After Elvis died, for Estelle, the music died as well, at least for a while. We ended up working very briefly with Rick Nelson, but basically I was out of the group. And the other girls continued Sweet Butter Soul. I think that was the name of the group. They changed the name to Sweet Butter Soul, which did not pan out very well. So... Eventually, we all got back together. When was that? It had to be the early 80s. Everybody else that came in never really blended like the four of us, Myrna, Sylvia, Sissy, and myself. No one ever blended like that, and they still don't, you know. But we can get people to do harmonies, but not the blend. The blend, it'll never be the same. Never. I don't think. Jesus gave me a little light. I'm gonna let it shine. Jesus gave me a little light. I'm gonna let it shine. Jesus gave me a little light. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, shine, let it shine, shine, let it shine. Let your little light shine. In 1982. Estelle helped fellow recording artist Carl Bean found the United Fellowship Church Movement in Los Angeles, a liberal mainline church that is explicitly welcoming of LGBT African Americans. Over the last 30 years, it spread that message of inclusion across the country, opening churches in Atlanta, Baltimore, Buffalo, Charleston, Charlotte, Columbia, Detroit, Long Beach, Newark, New Brunswick, 
New York City, Philadelphia, Riverside, Rochester, San Diego, and Washington, D.C. Estelle remains very active in the movement as a minister at the Los Angeles Mother Church. I feel we are with a God of love. If God is love, he's all love, then we are, where does all this hate come from? And most people that shun the homosexual community are church people. Now, how can that be? You're supposed to be about all love. You say you're Christian. Christian only means to be Christ-like. So you're not being Christ-like when you spew out hate. That's not Christ-like. I don't believe that. So it's all right to be you. However you are, it's all right to be you. As long as you, you're respectful to yourself and to others, then it's all right. You know, I went through a big trip about my lifestyle, and I prayed about it. Lord, what should I do? Do you know what he said to me? It's not the songs that you sing. It's not what you do. It's the life you live. Make sure you live a decent life. And that set me free. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Now, if because someone else doesn't understand it, that's on them. That's not on me. Because I have a personal relationship with God, as we all should have. And what he tells me, I'm sure if you ask him, he'll tell you too. But Estelle found not just acceptance in her church. She found her partner. And they've been together for nearly 30 years. Now, I'm not going to tell you it's been all peaches and cream, you know, because naturally, as every relationship, they have their little whatever. But um, if you've made up in your mind that this is what you want to do and this is who you want, then work at it because it can work. It will work. What's your favorite thing about her? She's gentle. She's very gentle, and I love that. And she's very caring. She takes care of me. This has been a conversation with Estelle Brown of the Sweet Inspirations. And even if she had never sang a note, to me, she'd still be a sweet inspiration to us all. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. telling you, Wenzel, that it truly is one of my top ten favorite songs of all time. They sound like angels. It is a great song. And they're grooving along. Sweet inspirations by the sweet... Sweet sweet inspiration by the sweet inspirations. And what a life. I mean, to have been a a backup singer for Elvis and had been closeted, but not really closeted. Yeah. I mean, how do people manage all that? It sounds like she manages it with a lot of grace and just conviction about what's good and right in the world. I know. I'm so impressed by the people that we have on this show, uh, whether on tape or live in studio. Estelle Brown can come into the studio anytime we're here. I'm telling you, anytime we're here, because I want to sing Sweet Inspiration with her. So if you're listening, Estelle. Yeah, come on in. We'd love to have you. We'd love to find out what you're doing. It's a good, strong signal. You never know who's hearing this show. That's true. 
Well, that is <sighs> it for tonight, I'm sorry to say. Our thanks to IMRU's producer Steve Pry, tonight's director Miss Barbecue, board op Federico Garcia, and our Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. You can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. Since last Monday, way back in 2016, we lost two cultural icons, Carrie Fisher and her mother, Debbie Reynolds. I, I can't believe this. I know. Uh, you have some thoughts about Debbie. Well, the thing about Debbie is she was really the last gasp of old Hollywood because that woman had a work ethic that didn't quit. Yeah. Because I saw a lot of her. She used to have a one-woman show that she would do at the El Portal. It seemed like every time you turned around, uh, she did love letters. She would tour in that. And I caught her once at her casino in Vegas, which as a business didn't go all that well. But um, she was doing the show, The Late Night in the Lounge Show, and it sort of consisted of her standing there and speaking ill of her ex-husbands, but by God, she was committed <laughs> that to it. never gets old. And she had a room full of people, and they loved her, and when it was all done, and this was not a you know 20-minute show, this was, she stood there and talked to everybody and performed, and, and after the show, everybody got a picture with her, everybody got a hug. That's that's classic hardworking Hollywood. I know, and she was not a young woman then. You know, I saw a thing on her on CBS, I think it was CBS This Morning or CBS Sunday Morning, and it was talking about Singing in the Rain, where she does all that amazing dancing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she had never danced until that movie. And she describes working 12 hours a day. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, learning these steps, and you look at her, and she looks like an absolute pro, right? And, and she's between two. Solid professional dancers. I know, and she looks comfortable. Although, I remember reading an article about it where it's like you could tell that she was working, but you're not aware she's working in the wrong way. You're aware that she's really giving it her all. That's all it takes sometimes is just commitment and some talent. Clearly, she's the woman had some talent. Very impressive, and a little bit of, a little bit of gay history, too. Oh, yeah. She's an icon. I know. She headlined her first AIDS benefit at the Hollywood Bowl in 1983, and that was two years before Reagan ever said the word. Oh, yes. Well, good for her. I remember, actually, when Hollywood started stepping out like that, and um, and her daughter, Carrie Fisher, was also a fierce LGBT ally for much of her life, and a woman that was never afraid to take a chance. No, and she married a gay man, and what bigger ally do you have than that? That's true. I'm not sure she knew it at the time, but she found out. Well, in the spirit of love and adoration, we close tonight's show with the final song from a 1978 Star Wars holiday special. Which is famous for so, so many reasons, but primarily it features Carrie Fisher singing as Princess Leia in celebration of Life Day, to the tune of the Star Wars main title. And yes, that really happened. Mm. Good night. Good night. And may the Force be with you. We celebrate a day.